Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, everyone. Got settled here. So, can you believe, as we've already heard, that we're only one week away from Christmas. Next week, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the reality of Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So here at Harvest KL, we're gonna go, uh, we're gonna um, be spending today and next Sunday in Luke chapters one and two. These chapters contain what we call the birth narratives of John the Baptist and of Jesus. So today we have the uh, simple task of going through the mere 80 verses of Luke chapter one, uh, the longest chapter in the New Testament based on verse count. So how are we going to do this? Well, as I said, these two chapters uh, contain birth narratives. Okay, and what is a narrative? It's a story. So we will just walk through these stories about the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And like all good stories, they will be filled with interesting characters, but these are not just characters, but real people who lived real lives. And we will look at these people's lives all in the light of this coming Messiah named Jesus. And since we're using the story language, you should know that the climax of our time together will be looking at our own lives. Yes, you are one of the main characters today, and I want you to see yourself in the light of this coming Messiah. We've already heard the first part of John's story. We heard the reading um, in our Bible today, uh, in our Bible reading today. So let's start there in Luke chapter one, verse five. And it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we meet two of our characters today, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah or Zecharias, maybe your Bible has that, the Greek form of it. He was a priest and he was part of the priestly division of Abijah. If you were to go back, we're not going to, to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 24, you would see that Abijah is the eighth of the 24 divisions that came from Aaron's sons. That is Aaron, the brother of Moses, and of the tribe of Levi. And we learned that this descendant of Aaron was married to another descendant of Aaron, okay? And her name is Elizabeth. So, and both Elizabeth uh, and Zechariah were righteous, which in the Old Testament perspective meant that they followed God's commands blamelessly. This was a a pre-cross righteousness based upon the law. So what we have here is a spiritual power couple, okay? Not a Hollywood power couple, okay? Far, far from that, but a priestly righteous power couple, okay? Um, It was looked up with um, very special privilege when a priest married a daughter of Aaron. That is a woman with the same priestly background as himself. So the stage is set for the parents of John the Baptist to be of the best spiritual ancestry and John himself to have the highest spiritual pedigree. But 
there is a problem. Elizabeth was barren. They had no children and they were now quite old. This was a disgrace to Elizabeth and seen as a reproach within Judaism. Well, the story goes on and Zechariah is chosen by Lot to enter the main sanctuary of the temple into what is called the holy place where the lampstands and the table of showbread and the altar of incense reside. This is not the most holy place or what we call the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant had been, but the holy place. At this time, Zechariah would have been one of about 18,000 priests. Zechariah's division would go and serve for one week at two different times during the year, just like all the other divisions would have done. And each day, there are two services, okay, or two offerings, one in the morning and one in the evening. And for each service, lots would be cast uh, to see who um, would be the priest that would go and offer the whole burnt offering, as well as the incense offering that needed to precede that in preparation for the offering. And the priest would uh, serve in this specific role only one time in his lifetime. So this was literally a once in a lifetime event for Zechariah. The incense was offered to God on behalf of the people, and it symbolized the intercessions of the people going up to God. So while Zechariah is inside the holy place and he's offering the incense, the crowds are on the outside and they're praying. And they too are offering up their prayers or as this incense is going up to God on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, while this is happening, the angel Lord Gabriel appears to him and he is frightened. But Gabriel says in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this barren couple will have a son who is going to be great before the Lord and has the awesome task of turning many from Israel to the Lord and preparing a people for this coming Messiah. So what was Zechariah praying while offering incense. Well, he was praying on behalf of the people of Israel. He was praying for the forgiveness of their sins. He was praying for the long-awaited Messiah to come. And this prayer is heard by God and is going to be answered. So what was Zechariah not praying about? Well, I'm quite confident that he was not praying in the holy place for a son. I just went into all the detail of how amazing this priestly duty and act of service for the people of Israel this was. He was a man on a mission and would have fearfully and respectfully executed that once in a lifetime mission. But even more so, why do I think this? Because he does not believe the angel of God when he is told he will have a son. This was not his current prayer, 
But it, of course, had been a prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth for many years previously. But now, advanced in years, they had given up on that prayer. Little did they know that God, that his answer to the prayer of the nation of Israel was also going to be an answer to their prayer. So in his disbelief, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah asks for a sign. And this asking for a sign reveals his disbelief. But the angel Gabriel goes ahead and gives him a sign. But a sign of temporary judgment. Gabriel says in verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And we see that when Zechariah comes out to the crowds of people, he cannot speak. And at the end of his division's week of service, he goes home and Elizabeth becomes pregnant and stays hidden for five months saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Wow. Now we've seen our first two characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we have foreshadowing of John and even of this coming Messiah. We see a righteous spiritual power couple. We see a godly priest who succumbs to disbelief and faces temporary discipline from God. We see a righteous woman who in the grand event of God looking favorably upon the nation of Israel has seen her. Elizabeth says, when he looked on me, she feels seen and understood and known by God. And finally, she enjoys the removal of her reproach among people. Now, I said that you are the climactic character, and we have a ways to go before we reach our climax and before we reach you. But I want you to start thinking now, what prayer have you forgotten? In the midst of earthly reality that you face each and every day, what do you think is no longer possible? When you look at your age, your income, your family, your social status, your marital status, your friends, your job, your home, your health, your education, or any other reality of your life. When you look at those things, what have you concluded is no longer possible and no longer worth praying for? Hang on to that thought. We move on to verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So now we meet Joseph and Mary. Joseph is a man from the tribe of Judah, specifically from the line of David. And he is betrothed or engaged to a young virgin named Mary. Luke says nothing of her age, but she very well may be a teenager. This betrothal is different than what we may understand engagement to be, but because it is the first stage of a two-stage Jewish marriage process, some liken it to engagement. So what has happened in this first stage is that Joseph and Mary 
have already made a formal witnessed agreement to marry and the financial exchange of a bride price has taken place. So different than at least in a Western engagement, Mary legally belongs to Joseph and is considered his wife. However, they would remain in a separated state for about a year before they would have a marriage ceremony and Joseph would take Mary home with him. Now, a woman could be engaged as early as the age of 12. On to verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the, at the same and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So she was troubled. So what was this greeting? Well, it was a greeting of extreme grace. Move on to the next slide. You don't have to understand any of this, but the word for grace in Greek is charis. And you can see that his line to her is that second line there. And there's two forms of grace right there. And so what is he saying? He's saying grace implied to you bestowed with grace. He's saying grace to you, the recipient of God's grace. And this is what she's troubled over. <clears throat> she's trying to figure out why me? What is this extreme amount of grace that this angel is sending from God to me? Maybe this young teenage girl. Okay, now it's translated just mean greetings, favored one. But then added to it, what does the, uh, the angel say? The Lord is with you. So this is what's troubling her. This greeting, she can't handle it. This is a, an extreme greeting that she doesn't know what to do with. Now, the whole idea of grace being a greeting, you may be like, don't quite get that. But you probably actually do. Because if you know the Old Testament, you know uh, the Israelites, you probably know Shalom, which is peace. And that was a greeting, right? In the Middle East, where uh, my family and I have lived, um, they say Salem, peace. Okay, I'll probably mispronounce it, but it's right here as well, right? In Malaysia, they have Salamat, right? And so what? You've got Salamat Pagi, Salamat Malam, something like that. We could get a, a Michael to, but there's peace. It's a greeting. So it's the same thing, but grace was the greeting. So here's this greeting that is just overloaded with grace, and she's troubled by it. So first I must point out that what better word could be associated with the birth narrative of Jesus? The first words, grace upon grace upon grace, so much so that this young girl is troubled by it. So she's confused by this greeting. Who was she to receive such amazing words? A poor, humble young girl from a rural town of no significance. In so many ways, she is just the opposite of Zechariah. But grace is being lavished upon her in this greeting, and she is told that God is with her. What could this possibly mean? The wording reveals that she is both intensely curious, yet concerned. She's concerned about this. <clears throat> and the angel tells her not to be afraid because she has found favor with God but is this very favor that could be somewhat terrifying? And if that does not make sense to you, why did Moses try to get out of being used by God by blaming his speaking abilities, whether it was a stutter or some speech impediment or not? Why did Old Testament Saul 
run and hide when he was being declared Israel's first king. All saw their own inadequacies and feared being used by God. Extreme grace may have a somewhat terrifying effect on us at first. On to verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. And so we get the announcement of the coming Messiah, the promised king of the Davidic covenant, and his name will be Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now note the difference in Mary's response. She does not ask for a sign saying, how will I know? Instead, she asks how all this is going to happen. To little old me from the little old village who's young and has no significance. And to top it off, I'm a virgin. How? How are you going to carry this out? She's curious. She's concerned. She's troubled. But she's listening and she's responding. <clears throat> and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel answers her how question. And though she did not ask for a sign, he gives her one. Her relative Elizabeth, who is way too old to have, have children, has miraculously become pregnant and is in her sixth month of pregnancy. So yes, it will be miraculous for you to birth the son of God, but another birth miracle has already taken place and is assigned to you that this miracle too will come. But the ultimate answer to Mary's how question is in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing would be impossible with God. And Mary's faith response, believing what the angel had told her is, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we meet the characters of Joseph and Mary. We learn more about this coming Jesus. And we learn that it does not matter if God meets you on the greatest stage of life, in the holy place, in the sanctuary, in the temple, in the great city of Jerusalem, with huge crowds of people watching you, or if he meets you in a small rural village that holds no significance, nor any group of bystanders to witness your encounter with God. Whether from noteworthy background or humble means, whether in public or in private, whether old or young, whether with, with a title or no title, God acts according to his plan. And we're not to run and hide and make excuses to wiggle out of being part of God's amazing plan. No, we're to say, Lord, I am your servant. Do with me as you please. Just like Mary, we are to believe. 
In verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it, why is this granted to me, me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So the sign is confirmed to Mary. She sees her pregnant relative and Elizabeth confirms to Mary what wondrous things the Lord is doing with her. She declares that Mary's baby is the Lord, her Lord. And we see that even John in the womb somehow knows he has an important role regarding Jesus. And if you weren't yet convinced that Mary had indeed responded in faith to Gabriel, here Elizabeth states that Mary believed what was spoken to her. We don't have time to go over what is known as the Magnificat. This is Mary's song of praise that she bursts out into afterwards. And this could be a whole sermon on itself, and I encourage you to read it. It's amazing, her response to God in this. But we'll continue with the narrative uh, and move on to verse 57. It says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father and inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet, a writing tablet, and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the, all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Then Zechariah burst out in his own praise, but in the form of prophecy. Mary's praise was more about personal needs being met for her and her people of Israel. And Zechariah's praise is more about God's provision of the Messiah for Israel. But again, we're going to jump over this amazing response of praise and continue with the narrative to verse 80. And it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So we finally arrive at the birth of our character, John the Baptist, and then Zechariah, who has been temporarily disciplined by God, demonstrates his faith and names the baby John, as he was told to do. A righteous man who God gave a long but temporary season of silence, learned and grew and came out with greater faith and righteousness than before. And what now happens is that we move from our few main characters to the ripple effects that bring numerous others into our story. Elizabeth's relatives, all their neighbors, and then those who lived in the hill country of Judea. These narratives, these stories are getting out and spreading and making an impact on people's lives. And as you know, John's and then Jesus' birth and life 
will and does reach out to the entire world. And so I want to go to a couple more characters that were impacted as the world began to experience this Messiah. And we actually find them back in Luke verse uh, 1. We'll go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. And it starts, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we meet the characters Luke and Theophilus. Luke has researched and written this account that is centered on Jesus. And he has done it for a man who apparently is struggling a bit in his own faith. We know little about Theophilus, but it appears he is of high social status and contemplating whether the things he has heard and he has learned are truly for him to embrace. Now with Luke, we know a lot more. From Colossians, we know that he's a physician. We are fairly certain he was a Gentile believer. And he traveled with Paul on various portions of his missionary journeys. And the end of Paul's life, when Paul was facing execution in Rome, we read in 2 Timothy, only Luke is with me. So this professional, this physician, yet committed believer was used mightily by God in supporting Paul and ministering with him, as well as researching and writing the lengthy books of Luke and Acts. So here are our characters. Who do we have? We have Zechariah, an older righteous priest whose disbelief brought him a season of judgment, but who learned from it and emerged with greater faith and godliness. We have Elizabeth, an older righteous woman married to a righteous priest, the second half of the spiritual power couple, yet a barren woman who felt disgrace because she had no child. We have John, a special baby with a dramatic birth story who would be great before the Lord a man who would be set apart in unique ways and would have the awesome task of preparing Israel for their Messiah, turning them back to their God. We have Joseph, a man from the line of David, through whose lineage Jesus would be traced as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant to bring an everlasting king and kingdom. Then there's Mary, a young woman, or should I say girl, a virgin of humble means, full of faith, in commitment to God. And then Jesus, the one whose birth and life is the reason for us knowing all these characters. Theophilus, a man of high status, who is working out his faith in this Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah, the Christ. And then Luke, a Gentile physician and companion of Paul, who diligently researched and wrote what we call Luke and Acts. These are our characters, and their stories are filled with grace, righteousness, disbelief, judgment, fear, faith, repentance, salvation, praise, and good works. But I told you that the climax of the story today is you. Where do you fit in the story where Jesus changes everything, where Jesus changes everyone? All of these people's lives have been affected and changed by the birth of Jesus. Next Sunday, we will celebrate that birth and all that it means to have Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came for Jews and Gentiles, meaning everyone. But what does that birth mean to you? 
Where do you fit in the narrative that only exists because God in Jesus came to us? Maybe you identify with one of these characters. Or maybe you identify with one of the many other people in the New Testament who encountered Jesus. But regardless of who you may identify with, you are unique. You are a noteworthy character in this story. But what are you characterized by today? Fear? Faith? Judgment? Disbelief? Praise? What is your encounter with God like today? As you ponder that, I will, in, I will briefly introduce one last character. Lots of characters now. I explained that Luke had a connection to the Apostle Paul. Well, what we have just read in 80 verses of Luke, I want to summarize in three verses from Paul. Yes, I know. I could have saved you a whole lot of time, but I chose not to. So we move to Ephesians. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. Take your 80 or take your three. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as, as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As you contemplate the birth narrative of Jesus, I want you to clearly understand its impact on your rebirth narrative. As I hope you know, this baby Jesus would grow and eventually die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins and the offer of eternal life and for anyone who comes to him in faith. As Paul says, this salvation, being saved from our own sin and all the misery it causes us and the separation from God that results from it. This salvation is by grace. You cannot earn it. And it comes through faith in Jesus. And when you place your faith in him, he gives you a new birth. We've looked at two miraculous births today, but they were just the prelude to countless miraculous new births that would follow. New births in Christ that are still yet to come. And yes, it's miraculous. It's miraculous that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can know God, that God's spirit comes to live inside us and that we become a new creation that gets to live out the good works that God prepared just for us. The good works that he prepared just for you. The good works that define you as a, spirit, as a special character in this story. So first, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Like Mary, respond in faith to the amazing grace that is being shown to you. Like Elizabeth, know that God sees you. He understands you. He knows you. He says, I make you adequate. I make you whole. I give you the joy that you've been waiting for. You are incomplete without me. So first, Place your faith in Jesus if you have not already done so. Second, for those who are a new creation, with God's spirit living in you, are you living out your narrative? God has good works for you, already prepared for you. Are you walking in them? Do you believe that you are a major character with a unique story? Will you be like Mary and believe that nothing is impossible with God? What about that old prayer of yours? 
Is it impossible? Well, it's only impossible if it's outside the will of God. But are you certain it is still not part of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you? The nation of Israel waited a long time to see what God had prepared beforehand. Elizabeth and Zechariah waited a long time to see what God had prepared for them. Should you keep praying and waiting? And also for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, are you running away from God? Running away from the good works he's prepared for you? Are you running away from your God-given narrative, making excuses like Moses or hiding like Saul? Or are you saying like Mary, I am your servant. Do with me as you please. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to have fear, but faith can overcome it. Do you believe that nothing is impossible with God? Now, you may believe Philippians 4.13 and claim, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, yet not believe nothing is impossible with God. You may ask how. Because we often claim Philippians 4.13 based on the good works we are preparing for ourselves. We make the decision. We set a goal. We set a desired outcome. And yes, we in genuine faith believe Christ can help me do this. But how much more and how much more amazing, both in fear and faith combined, intermingled together to let God set the agenda, to ask God to show you what these good works are that he has prepared for you, for him to declare to you, and then for you to respond in faith and say, I am your servant, and I believe nothing is impossible with God. So in these final two weeks of the year, we have two big celebrations, Christmas and the New Year. May our Christmas celebration be a focus on Jesus and your relationship with him. May we truly see him as the free gift, the Christmas gift that he is to us. And as the New Year approaches, let's just not make resolutions as to what we will do, but let's humbly ask God what good works he's already prepared for us in 2023. And then believe.